I really don't think it needs to be complex. I think there's beauty in, in the simplicity of just simply building, listening to customers and building something of value for them. That's it. Like you've got to engage in that art of being able to hear what the customer's pain points are, their needs, their fears, their dreams, their aspirations. And you've got to have that ability to connect the dots and actually, you know, in some ways dial down the noise and get to the real hub of what it is that could possibly create the value for them. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hello and welcome to The Occupational Philosophers, a not-so-serious business podcast designed to spark your curiosity, imagination and creativity. I'm joined, as I am every time, by my co-host and collaborator, Simon Banks. Simon, how are you? John, hello. Um, well, as one would expect, uh, yeah, all's good. And you good self? I'm very good. I'm very delighted to be here. And I'm excited as always because we have a guest episode. But before we get to that, what's caught your curious eye this week? Well, John, it was just today. My little town is on the national news because our changing rooms at the local surf club have banned any type of nudity. So you can get changed in there. You're not allowed to show your body. So uh, <laughs> not an April Fool's joke. How's that going to work? Well, I'm not sure because we Is have a massive... The, yeah, you got to wrap the towel around you and sort of do everything whilst you're in your towel type thing, like you would yeah, do on the and beach. we have a massive swimming club, which go out every morning, like probably two, three hundred. When they come in and get changed, they can't get changed. So, go figure. <laughs> Changing rooms with no nudity. And, uh, <laughs> they're just... There's no point. Or they're just going to have to have one cubicle, aren't they? And everyone's just going to have to queue up and go in and out of that one. It'll, the sea have gone out by the time they get out there, wouldn't they? If they do that? <laughs> well, I don't know the logistics, but uh, it certainly put our little town on the map, John. And what about you? What's caught your curious eye this week? <laughs> My curious eye is the world of merchandise. There was a, a little article saying about how companies that sort of uh, suddenly slip and slide or crash and burn – any merchandise associated with those uh, ventures suddenly becomes hot property and people are putting it on eBay. So you get things like uh, WeWork bugs going for $500 on eBay because, you know, when it was going through rough times. And, and then the recent Silicon Valley bank thing, there was cups and blankets and even a cheese board, which was going for $200 on eBay. So people just gathering these things up and going, they'll be worth something once this company is no more. So, I thought that was uh, quite interesting. So if you see your merch going out the door or suddenly all the cups have gone in the kitchen, it could be a sign that your your company's about to take a tumble. <laughs> Maybe it's always happened. Maybe there were people on the Titanic. I don't know. You know just <laughs> quick, darling, let's get the tablecloths with the Titanic logo on. They could be worth something after all this. Anyway, today's a guest episode, Simon. Who is the curious cat we have with us this week? Well, John, I'm going to call our guest today a startup queen. This person is a strategic and creative innovator who has an entrepreneurial spirit bigger than Mount Everest. He takes opportunities from little beans to full Jack and the Beanstalk scenarios with a much friendlier ending with no real giants dying in the process. 
heavily connected to the startup and innovation community as well as the media and advertising community and plays a very active role in mentoring startups and future innovators as well as being a very strong advocate for women and diversity in innovation. She's been an angel investor, an entrepreneur driving change in large companies and an entrepreneur taking exciting new startup in the personal finance space, Money Brilliant, from idea to an exit in the role of CEO and co-founder. So boom, 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 we have a real-world kick-ass startup megastar and also one of my favourite people to boot. Welcome, startup jazz queen, Gemma Enright. Oh, we got the jazz queen in there. Thank you, Simon, for the amazing introduction. And hi, John. Pleasure to be here. Hey, Gemma. Very nice to meet you. And maybe just leading off of myself and Simon, uh, what's caught your curious eye this week? Well, I must admit I've spent an enormous amount of time walking over the last couple of months. So last Friday I did a big 30-kilometre walk, um, raising money for the Heart Foundation here. So lots of training on our beautiful coastline here on the northern beaches and I think walking's pretty curious if I'm being honest yeah. like we think it's something that everyone does every day and it, it can't be that interesting but I can tell you when you get out on the track the different styles of walking and certainly in a 30 kilometer competitive event like that um, ah. you know you've got the real strutters you've got the uh, lazy strollers but everything in between you've got the full designer active wear, you've got the shorts with the holes in it, you know, you've got a real mixed bag out there. So I think that's the best of humanity when we're out there doing something we love. So Gemma, I'm curious there, you mentioned about strutting and strolling. And of course, I have to ask, are you a strutter or a stroller? I'm a strutter for sure. And in fact, <laughs> I actually invested in some walking sticks. <laughs> ah, <it's> okay. <laughs> I got super serious. <laughs> oh wow! Well, uh, are they called strutting sticks? Yeah. I think it's got a special From term. now on, they're called strutting sticks. Let's face it. I actually did lend one of them to someone else, so you know, community spirited. Uh-huh. Everyone deserved a stick, so and it helped a lot. <laughs> I can tell you. They work. I also, um, I call them the the sign you're getting a little more mature sticks as well. You know what I mean? Like- 100%. And there'll be a little bit of that coming through this interview, no doubt, you know, unashamed. <laughs> like, I like the fact we might have another hashtag there is everyone needs a stick. <laughs> Just on the walking piece, have you noticed each and every – because I think when you walk, you're, you're – Hopefully, you've got your eyes wide open. You're looking at the world around you. It's one of the joys of walking. Have you noticed that you're noticing a lot of stuff you wouldn't have seen before when you're walking? I think one of the things that I love, if I'm being serious for a second, is the great outdoors. And I live in a beautiful part of the world. And to me, nature, a little slightly different bit of nature than what you described, Simon, in your intro. That's uh, nudity, that's one variety, but um, I'm more into sort of trees and ocean and animals and birds and it's pretty inspiring up this part of the world that I live in and to me I just walk a lot now because I, I find it's a real catalyst for thinking, ideas, clearing ahead, all those good foundational things that you need to sort of work through life, I guess, and big problems. That's what I was thinking as well. I think, Gemma, there's just, uh, I'll often, I go running a lot, 
and that's where I'll chew ideas over or or not, or just let something something's in my mind and suddenly something emerges at the end of the run. You go, okay. And I didn't 100%. really give it much conscious thought, but mm. being out in that, that motion and outdoors just seems to make things bubble up in a productive way. 100%. You've spoken about uh, your part of the world with mm. uh, listeners from all over the world. Where are you in the world today? So I'm in a part of Sydney called the Northern Beaches. So anyone who's uh, come across Home and Away, which I know that's <laughs> been quite globally recognised as one of the most quality dramas the world has ever produced, let's face it. And interestingly, I think they were just filming down the road here from me um, the other day, but that's um, and all the beaches is where that's filmed um, and it's a really mm-hmm. beautiful part of the world. It's sort of the north, northernmost end of the beaches run of Sydney before you get into the central coast. So I love it here. Gemma, we're always curious about when we meet someone at a dinner party that we we have those questions that open up the conversation. But we were getting bored with the idea that you might turn up at a dinner party and say, hey, what do you do? So we decided uh, rather than have those normal questions, we would mix it up a bit and just try some dinner party questions to get to know you a bit more. So first question is, uh, what's giving you joy at the moment? Well, actually having no job is giving me joy at the moment. So it's a good thing you didn't start with what do you do because that would have been highly offensive to me right now. <laughs> you would have walked off, wouldn't you? I, I would have ju- strutted ju- out ju- of ju- here. Ju- <laughs> I'm getting my sticks and I'm out of here. Chucked a volivant in my face. Yes, no, but seriously, um, I made a conscious um, decision just to take a break from the last big gig that I've had, um, which no doubt we'll talk about a little bit today and it's a wonderful thing you know sometimes it can feel a bit scary but for me um i'm fully embracing that time to sort of just have a bit of a reset do you have a hobby you lose yourself in increasingly and this is where the old nana theme continues gardening it's cool gardening i like it it doesn't matter if it's a a pot that I'm putting on the balcony or at the moment I'm, I'm about to plant some citrus. So I just love yeah. it. It's Again, it's got that theme of nature. You're in the outdoors. It's been so humid here in, in Sydney, so it's it's literally like working in a sauna, but it's super rewarding, you know, like seeing things grow. Call me a nana. That's okay. <laughs> I like that. But uh, And then how do you approach it? Are you uh, tending things and just losing yourself and being mindful as you tend and maintain what's there or are you now one of those people who plans and says right okay now is the season to do x and i need to prune back and pare back and plant this because it's march or april do you do that sort of thing Uh, the latter sounds like an aspiration like i might get there Uh in the next 10 years (laughs) but no at the (laughs) moment i'm just i think i'm just having a play here and a play there but you know lots of watering and a little bit of addition. I've been told by my partner that I am not to buy any more pots and plants um, for the terraces. So I'm now I'm now moving into the like really uh, untamed backyard um, and seeing what I can come up with down there. But I'm certainly not not at that serious level yet. Watch this space. So what you're saying, Gemma, is you've got a pot habit, is what you're saying. Ah! <laughs> 
I'm not answering that on the grounds that it may incriminate me. But. My partners, they're suffering of this pot home. Yeah. They look like tomatoes. Yeah. They look like tomatoes. <laughs> uh, we're going to change swift direction now. Who or what inspires you right now? Look, at the moment, um, I must admit, I'm sort of getting a, back into a few things that I used to love, and that's that's provided me some inspiration. Um, I'm getting back into things like, and this might not mean a lot to people around the world, but Triple J Radio, which I haven't listened to for a, a long time. <laughs> it's sort of more of a, a sort of a cooler, edgier youth non-commercial station here in Australia, and I just love the fact that they are all about new music and I thought I'd be a bit of a fuddy-duddy and not like a lot of the new tunes, but I'm actually really loving it, like really loving it. Just catching the cultural differences, is that would that be like Radio 6, Simon? You, you Obviously, you, yeah, you go between Radio two. Six, okay, Radio yeah, 6 yeah. in the UK. That's, yeah, that's where I yeah. update my Spotify list. Yeah, and I'm doing that too. I've actually started a Spotify list called New, new Music, and, you know, I'm being inspired to, like, add some things. And I, I try it on my partner who's a little bit older than me in a quiet moment and mostly he tells me can you turn that crap off but um you know every now and then you'll love one and i think gold that's excellent see we can learn music <laughs> and half the time you can't make sense of the band names because they'll say and, and next up is broken fridge magnet with their tune <laughs> twisted lemon and you go I don't know. sounds all right i'll give it, it a go it doesn't matter now, outside Broken Fridge Magnet, mm. what big question are you wrestling with right now? Well, I've given you a hint already on this one. So for me, it's really about what am I going to do next, you know? So I've um, just spent the last couple of years working on, like, super exciting project, relaunching the City of Sydney, their whole new street furniture network. So if you think about all the bus shelters, everyone probably has a reference point to that and we've installed these beautiful big digital advertising um, network in conjunction with lots of street infrastructure so it really is an incredible asset that we've built for the uh, you know the, the people of the city of sydney but i've been really responsible for driving the advertising sales proposition commercialization strategy partnerships and and securing the advertising revenue that the company needs to see. So that's been absolutely incredible. It's probably it's the closest thing you would get to a startup project within a very large established organisation. So for me it ticked lots of boxes and I left at a time when I was really proud of it. You know, it was established, operationalised, team built around it, doing very well from an advertiser demand point of view. And so now I'm just taking a breath and I'm thinking about, well, where do you go from there? You know, when you've worked on something as amazing as that, like what, what do you really do next? Um, so that's, for me, the, the big question. And uh, just a, a quick digression into that, street furniture. I mean, mm. so this would be anything that's eye level, at pavement level. It's not big billboards that might sit up and away, but everything street level. 100%. That we might a- interact with and walk through and and see as part of our journey somewhere through a city. 100%. Yeah. So you, you you will notice it a lot on bus shelters, but it doesn't have to be attached mm. to bus shelters. It might be freestanding, you know, or it might be yeah. for us we had what we called communication panels that the city of Sydney used one side of it to communicate to their community and there was an advertising 
uh, face on the other side of that. So it's all sorts mm. of street utility that's provided to the community. So, yes, street level. And we've just had World Pride Festival, I think you would call it, in Australia. So the, the colour and the, the visual landscape that played out across this, the street furniture has been, yeah, amazing. And then you can have different themes as you walk, which will almost like walk with you and turns upside down what's possible with the way you sort of reach your customers as well. Is that a good way to say it? That's un- it's unreal. And it's a really fantastic thing to point out, right? Because, you know, in the world of advertising, a lot of people go, oh, advertising, you know, like that, you know, that's the sort of the, the dirty world, commercial world of advertising. But actually, in the city of Sydney through World Pride, and we had, you know, obviously the brand new network there, and so many brands. Um, brought campaigns to the street that was about bringing the voice of equality and, and diversity and inclusion to the streets, you know, through their messages. And so it was a wonderful example of how brand communication and advertising can actually enhance the urban experience, not detract from it. And brands have such a big, powerful role to play in driving change in our world and in our community and for me that was a really proud moment to see being part of, a, of this wonderful new network that's being used as a platform for good. And I know you're, uh, you've, you've said that the question you're wrestling with is what next but if you did want to distill all your experience and what it is you do and where the sweet spot is, what, what are the intersections, what's the Venn diagram look like for what it is you do and what you're passionate about? It's such a good question and I think like all of us as individuals through our careers we really we really grapple with the articulation of it we sort of have a sort of intrinsic sense of oh yeah I do do that sort of well and I do this sort of well I used to call myself a brilliant generalist in that you know I was quite adaptable and I could cut across lots of different disciplines, you know, from, from sort of strategy, marketing, all sorts of different um, disciplines. I then sort of thought about myself in the context of, you know, my, my superpower and sort of came up with this silly label of like a, a curious crusader because I was really sort of easily fired up about a problem or when something needed fixing or that wasn't right or that was an injustice and I was really fascinated by you know how people navigate around their problems and how businesses sort of help solve some of those problems through products and services and then I guess most recently and it's sort of probably the, a more boring expression of my myself in a way but but one that I think encompasses that intersection really well is like I call myself a bit of a go-to-market specialist now. So uh, the the intersection of skills that I have is sort of that where there's a, a need to develop a new product or a new consumer market um, where there are big, hairy goals and milestones to meet really quickly and I'm combining that's the skills I have across sort of strategy human-centred design, that commercialisation, sales, marketing and leading programs that have those big milestones. So I'm at my best really when I'm working on something that's in its infancy and it needs to move really quickly towards rubber hitting the road and that's what I really love doing. Is there, and are there any elements of things that, you, that might fit in that category that make it more attractive to you? Is it like oh, this has got some real hairy problems here. I, I'm drawn to this one. This is really a challenge. 
what makes it attractive to take it on? It's a really good point that you're making because I often bite off things that I go, why the hell am I doing this? This is really nuts. You know, like this, is, <laughs> this is really hard. But but I do have this sort of sadistic um, desire to be involved in things that, you know, are not super easy because, you know, so there's definitely that. But also if I think with my more pragmatic head, I just like things that have high growth potential. So they're either small and they're not yet achieved what they could or they're not started yet, but they have massive potential and that they're a bit game-changing, you know, so that by the end of it I could say, hey, we got from there to there and wasn't that an incredible experience and achievement to get from there to there, you know, and create something that then lives on. I think that's really cool. Now, Jem, there's a saying in the entrepreneur world, entrepreneur porn, and just to provide some clarity around that, it's fed by media and online coverage of an idealized lifestyle. This entrepreneurial porn presents an airbrush reality in which all work is always meaningful and running your own business is a way to achieve better work life and harmony. So I was looking, that's the definition I got up for some clarity. What I noticed is when you search entrepreneur porn, there's actually loads of listings for porn <laughs> from an entrepreneurial side. I didn't click on anything, but I was in my mind. Sorry, I've been trying to grab it all day. Like, hey, I've just got seed funding. I'm also a plumber. <laughs> Strangely, I've never searched that, so I don't know whether you're telling us the truth well, or not. Yes, yeah, strangely, yeah. most we're not have. advocating that people should stop putting this into into Google. <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought, oh, like, oh my goodness, there's actually a whole world of this. But <laughs> so this isn't meant to be a negative question. But if there's just maybe one thing, what do you need to consider most before you take flight and do the work of launching your startup? If you're maybe a little bit wooed by the the story, maybe what's the one or two things? Just what do you really need to consider? And this isn't meant to be in a negative way, but what's the what's a couple of key things? I think uh, first thing is probably just to understand, going back to my earlier point, is to understand that it's not easy and what you're actually signing up for is quite a big, long journey of dedicating yourself for the good part of three, five years beyond that and you really need to be up for that. Like there's a lot of sacrifice that you make as a founder and, and that's why I have an enormous respect for founders. Anyone who's started a business and gone through that early stage or had a business and failed as well, enormously inspiring people and, and nothing to be ashamed of because it's genuinely the heart. So are you really up for it? Make sure you're really, really up for it. And secondly, again, doesn't matter what size your business, whether you're a high growth or a smaller one, whatever your aspirations, do your homework first, you know, like make sure you're talking to customers before you've even got your ABN or your web address. Don't do any of that stuff until you have some solid validation that you're doing the right thing. That's critically important. And actually you don't need to rush into that stuff, right? So you can do an enormous amount of business building before you even have a business. So that's what I, I mean, yeah. I, I've got some ideas and I'm not going to share them here because I think they're good and I don't want anyone stealing my stuff. Um, but <laughs> yeah, man. I myself have had a couple of ideas lately and I'm going to go and start talking to people and see whether or not, yeah. you know, is there anything in this? 
the occupational philosophers was born of the desire to explore the interplay between creativity, curiosity, and imagination in the world of both business and life with some philosophy thrown in. Now, from our understanding, for me, these would all be some great attributes to the world of you know startups and launching businesses and that sort of whole idea of a startup culture. So we'd love to dive into that just a little bit more. And you're someone who's done this. So it's very rare to where people talk a lot about it, but you've done it and signed the deal and you know, boom, boom, on to the next one. So lots of people talk about scaling and selling businesses. And look, most of us have had some idea that we would love to, you know, explode all over the universe and to see it shine. What surprised you most about launching and then selling the business, your business or Money Brilliant? Yeah, Money Brilliant. Well, firstly, that it's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> I think we all get into these things and we think, God, everyone's doing it, so it must be super easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, secondly, like what you think will happen probably won't. That's a huge one. So, you know, there's this whole idea of control in there. And probably the third thing is that at the end of the day, ideas are cheap. It's the execution that really is the difference between winning and losing. So that's something I've really learned through the process of working in, in this sort of innovation space. And look, the first two there, that's not as easy. And you, what you think will happen probably won't happen. You know, maybe they're not, not as useful other than to be a little reassuring, I suppose, to anyone out there who's actually in this space at the moment or thinking about getting into this space. For me, it's really reassuring when you get into the grunt of it and it's super hard and things aren't going as you've planned to really understand that that's a very common lived experience from entrepreneurs and even the best entrepreneurs that is a common experience. So it's okay, right? So it's all, all about that mental resilience that you need to build, that muscle you need to build to be okay about that, to not freak out about that. But understand that, you know, control and plans in an early stage company or project is very different to control and plans in a bigger business. That's like number one. So you have to flex a lot more. You have to be more in tune with the results of your activity. If you don't have eyes on what your actions are delivering, then you're never going to learn fast enough to get your business onto a better path. You've got to let go of things when they're not working. But equally, you can't just change tact all the time. There's a real difference of between letting go of something that's not working to being ambiguous all the time and not knowing where to go. Now, on this, because this, uh, you know, in larger organisations we say, hey, what are we doing today? We're hashtag agile. What does it look like? <laughs> I'm not sure, but we're doing it. So, look, uh, under that notion, spoken about a lot, when do you know when to let go as opposed to hold your course? And is there a formula there or is it gut feel or data-driven or what does that look like? I think it's data-driven and I think it's like we're going to, probably talk through this about the importance of customer and staying close to the customer, right? So, and there are different ways that you do that through the course of building a business, right? But I think that the the simplest way to answer that question, Simon, now is that concept of flogging a dead horse. Sometimes you're so, uh, you've got such high conviction about the idea that you started out to deliver 
that you cannot move off it even though the data and the revenue and the customers are telling you that is not what they want. And so all I'm sort of saying is just you've got to be really good at checking yourself and going, am I just being really bloody-minded about this? Asking people for feedback but listening to the feedback too. So you can see if you say, hey, I've got this idea to someone and you see them shifting uncomfortably on their seat, you should be in tune with that body language to go, hey, they don't think this is as good an idea as I think this is. Maybe I need to dig in here. It's all of that stuff. It's about the intuitiveness, if you like. I think that's uh, something we're familiar with. Gemma, that uh, when we mentioned mm. this podcast, people shift uncomfortably in their seats. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> um, just, just to, you, so you took it's just really interesting. So you've got the ideas, you're then thinking about execution, maybe then moving to mm. the people who have to execute. If you were to then think about a perfect team, and let's say you've got five people to launch, scale, and sell the business. What would you be looking for if you let's imagine well you you'll be one of them so you've got another four people what kind of skills or what kind mm. of team members would you bring in what attributes would they have that would complement and allow you to, to succeed or give you the most chance of succeeding it's such a good question i i, lo- I really love that question and just before I, I get to answering that question um if i can just reflect on one really, really important thing when I talk about ideas are cheap and execution is everything in an early stage startup, what you have typically in a startup dynamic is you have a limited set of resources to get to a point of validating your business. So proving out that your business is actually producing something of value for the customer that can make money and sustain itself, right? So now those resources might include investment, they might include people, or you might have a bunch of people that are willing to work for nothing in exchange for some equity, but I can tell you they're not going to work for nothing forever. So you still only have them for (laughs) a moment of time. And your time as well, you know, your time as a founder, which you're you're possibly not getting paid for either, you can't do that forever as well. So it's a race in a way. You know, a startup is a race. It's how quickly can you use the limited resources you have to get to a point where you can show that your business has real viability. And so that gets me onto the magic team to do that. And really my experience has been largely in the tech space, right? So there are so many different types of businesses that need different types of people. So I'm only going to talk about it from the, the point of view of, you know, you've got a tech digital business, what do you actually need? So my five people would be a co-founder, founder, that is really your blue sky visionary. So startups really need vision. You know, what is that big problem that you're solving? How are you going to change the world? And do you have someone in the business that is a subject matter expert around that, which is largely often the person who starts the business? And can they sell that dream? Because you're going to be selling that dream to investors, customers, staff, You know, so that is critically important. Number one, you've got to have it. The second thing, I think having a technical co-founder is gold. If you're a business that's tried to build technology 
with not much money, it's really hard. It's really expensive. So having a technical co-founder, so someone who's got skin in the game but can actually provide that guidance on how to build things and adapt and evolve things. One of the big mistakes I see founders make in the tech space is going out and signing a big contract with an outsourced technology company to build their app. I can tell you that you're going to burn a lot of money really, really fast. And if that app doesn't do what you need it to do and through customer validation, you realize you've built the wrong thing, it can be a very, very costly mistake to make. So having that skill set in your business is absolutely critical. Then I would also say you need, and here's the funny thing, you actually need someone, whether they're a co-founder or they're just someone who really wants to work in the business, I believe you need someone who does have some bigger corporate experience, management and leadership experience. If they're operational, fantastic, because startups really need operational people in them. But, you know, people from bigger, you don't you don't want someone who's not agile, going back to your um, word, sign. You want someone who's an entrepreneur or entrepreneur in a big company that's ready to step out into a smaller company, but they're going to bring all of that wonderful discipline that big corporates have. So, you know, they understand leadership, they understand culture, they understand accountability, they're good at organising resources and they bring a level of discipline. Like I've seen so many startups that just lack that maturity and experience to organise their resources and they're all a bit all over the shop and you really want someone with a bit of maturity in your business as well. So that would be my number three. Number four would be product person. Again, after the technical person, worth their weight in gold. This is someone that's so close to the customer, understands how to listen to the customer's need and spin that back into excellent MVP product that they then test, 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 and they get it right over a period of time testing. And then finally, although I wouldn't I wouldn't say invest in marketing too early, but having a growth marketer in your early stage company, and a growth market is very different from a marketer. A growth marketer is, you know, more the hacky end of the spectrum, if you like. So they're not necessarily advocating for you to run big campaigns on street furniture advertising from day one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they're actually yeah. smarter than that. They know how to mine growth digitally and for not much money. And that's a critically important skill set. Did that used to be termed guerrilla marketing? I remember sort of there would be that thing that was a bit more sort of finding roots in that were low cost. It's growth hacking. It's growth okay. hacking, you know, like so it's finding like blogs used to be that. Like you write a blog that you grow an audience for, you're just pushing out some content. It can be a great acquisition channel. It's those little parts where you can get community, build community really fast that you're not paying for essentially. Whereas guerrilla marketing can also be like coming in and riding off the back of, say, another big brand sponsor, like getting out there with posters and hats and merch <laughs> when you're not really the sponsor of the FIFA World Cup, you know? Okay. Like, like uh, yes, <laughs> like, I remember that, yeah. It was like, like, um, like Beats at the 2012 uh, Olympics, uh, the Beats headphones. They went in and they gave every athlete a set of headphones, Dr. Dre. All of a sudden you've got 5,000 of the coolest people in the world at that time bopping around the village, all in Beats headphones. Clever. Uh, you know, hello, Apple, billion-dollar acquisition. So that's is that growth hacking? Yeah. Uh, 
Maybe a bit of both. Maybe bit a bit of both, of both yeah. there. Okay. <laughs> Big gorilla, bit hacking. Bit hybrid, yeah, so. a bit hybrid. <laughs> a bit Hashtag hacking. gorilla hacking, but, we but call clever, that. Yeah. Really clever. One I really liked, I, I, they're not the answers I would have expected, but that's why we wanted to ask you as well. Mm. So it's great. Now, we always, let's say I've got the idea. How do I even seek funding? Like, let's say you're sitting at home, I've got the idea, I've heard that, okay, I understand I need a team. What does that even look like? So I think for 99% of the world, we've got no clue of where to even start. Like, do you self-fund? Do you seek it first? Yeah. And I ask loads of questions and you've generally forgotten the one I asked by the time uh, you answer it. So apologies there. So I'll go no, back. No, no, it's at a, what no, stage it's do I, I seek it. funding? Yeah. Okay. I got it. I got it. And I guess, again, I would say that every business and type of business is different and there could be a, a lot of different answers to this question. I think probably the first question I would want to qualify in giving that advice would be, Are you actually launching a business that is what we call a high growth business, right? So it's a business that is going to scale to dizzy heights or, you know, the aspiration is that it'll go global, scale to dizzy heights, you know, maybe become a unicorn like Canva, you know, be valued over a billion dollars and make shareholders really wealthy along the way. Or... Is it sort of more of what we call a lifestyle business? So it's going to be a really solid, respectable earner, but it's not going to knock the lights out, if you like. So I I don't know a lot about the investment of that lifestyle business category. Like I've worked more in the sort of the tech startup space, which is largely about that high growth category but so someone else might be better placed but if I just talk about sort of that high growth category because most most starry-eyed entrepreneurs want to change the world and you know be a unicorn let's face it so that's sort of of course and it's so easy everyone should be able to do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah happens all the The time the reality it's not easy right so you know but we can only shoot for the stars so look the advice that I would give is that there is actually a number of different rounds of investment you may need. Now, if you can self-fund, as you said, Simon, that's that's called bootstrapping. That is absolutely the best way to do it because you own the company. You know, you might give some shareholding and equity to people who are building the company with you, but you own the company, which means you have total control. You get to reap all the rewards yourself. And you don't have to go through this process of capital raising, which most founders who've gone through that process um, would tell you that it's very time consuming and it takes them away from running the business. So that that's the biggest challenge, right? But there's not that many startups that would able would be able to get through without some kind of investment. So bootstrapping if you can, but let's face it, there's going to be a point in time that you're mostly going to have to raise some funds. So then we go on, we understand the different rounds of funds. So there's this saying um, when you first kick off, triple F is the sort of the funding round, if you like, and it's fools, family and friends. So you're sitting around at the barbecue, you're telling everyone that you're going to become the next Steve Jobs. There's a couple of people who've had a few too many Chardonnays and they believe (laughs) you and they're willing to 
put a few dollars in as a bit of a good on you, mate, you know. So that's a, a very viable round of funding. You know, it's fairly small, but it's useful. And, you know, obviously no one sets out to lose anyone's money, but those people who are investing at that stage know that they're investing in a risky venture as well. So hopefully your relationships are, are good enough for that. And then you get onto seed, um, which is sort of the interesting experience that, that that I've had. So I've been on both sides of the fence, raising seed capital for a startup, my startup um, Money Brilliant, but I've also been an angel investor on the other side, investing in early stage companies. So this is like where you're raising, you know, anywhere from, I guess, 400 to 400,000 to 3 mil, something like that is sort of in your seed round, maybe a little bit more for some and you tend to have relatively low valuations at this stage. But what I would say the time to do this is not when you just have an idea on a PowerPoint slide. Like that is a bad time to do this because you probably invest a lot of uh, your energy into lots of conversations with people that don't come to anything because you've got nothing to show them in terms of validation for your startup. Also, because you've got nothing to show them, your valuation is not going to be very good. So for the money that they invest in your company, you're giving away a lot of your company before you've even really got going. So I would say you you need to hold out as long as you possibly can, fund it from family and friends as long as you possibly can, go to your seed round when you've got some validation. So you've actually, you either got a little bit of revenue through the door, you've got strong validation from customers that what you've built and what you're offering is desirable, they're liking it, they're repeat customers you're selling something, you've built a product that's in a big growth category. So they're all the things that seed investors are looking for. Angel investors want to know that what you're telling them is going to happen has a chance of happening and that's what they're investing in. So picking that moment's really, really important, I think. Just on that, Jebbit, the fact you've been on the other side, we've got a program obviously in the UK, I think you've got something similar. Dragon's Den is is that thing in the UK where people come present their ideas. Having been on the other side, what what is the one thing that you would commonly see as the pitfall? Is it coming too early to that round of seed cap? Is that the biggest problem you would see time and again? Starry-eyed, starry-eyed entrepreneurs going, yeah, but just too early. Not necessarily too early, but I think it's probably, you know, when when you're making decisions from from a seed investment point of view, Firstly, I think the quality of the founder and the team is probably the number one thing that you look at, right? So it goes back to that ideas are cheap, execution is everything. Do I genuinely believe that this team and this founder have what it takes to make this concept, you know, win? And then secondly, it's always about the market. Like, to, you know, to what degree is, is this business working in a space that's a new space that's defendable if they execute well and that it's an area of growth? So they're, they're probably the main things that you look for if I just spin that question on its head a little bit. This is really interesting. So I saw, a, I don't know if it was a TED Talk or something, but it was talking about the world of startups and businesses that succeed and there was numerous factors and the most compelling reason that one's succeeded or failed in the end of it was hugely associated with timing, just the time it came to market. Was the market ready for this fantastic idea? And so some fantastic ideas sort of died and, and crashed and burned because the timing was, it was too early 
to market. Oh, it was too late. But timing seems to be such yeah. a big thing in that. I think that's true too. So there's there's forces outside of our control. I mean, interestingly, with my Money Brilliant experience, there was probably a little bit of that. Uh, so we were what you call a PFM, which is a personal financial management platform. So a bit of technology that essentially helps you track your finances, manage your bills, you know, all the stuff that is a bit of a pain point. So we and a couple of others in market were sort of pioneers of that space and it was hard building a business like that that wasn't connected to any transactional things. So it was you were in an app and you were largely, you know, you could link all your bank accounts to it and then you were just managing your money, right? So we did very well getting the interest of AMP, which is a big financial institution who invested in us and acquired us. And they've then since sold our business to another big, one of our big four banks here as well, Westpac. So that that's great validation. Now, we probably were early. It was just when there was a little bit of interest around this. So we sold our business at a good time, I think, for the interest that was building. But we probably couldn't build, have built and scaled that business on our own. So, you know, we sort of decided to be acquired at that stage when we were still quite early because we were probably not able to get the longevity on our own going it alone if you liked. So I think that's my experience of timing. And now PFM functionality is nearly in every banking app that you'll use, you know, so it's now a huge space. So had we been a bit later, would we have capitalised a little more on that? Not sure. But, yes, I think timing is key too. Now, Jem, you've been speaking around, I've heard this customer centricity, and this often pops up in organizations under the term human-centered design, and that's the space where I work in, you know, pretty much 24-7. So what is customer centricity, and how do we become more customer-centric? Let me just answer it in the, in the simplest yeah. way that I can, you know. Like, for me, would I say that I'm a sophisticated human-centered design specialist, I wouldn't, but I've used lots of the tools and techniques of human-centered design. And at the end of the day, I really don't think it needs to be complex. I think there's beauty in, in the simplicity of just simply building, listening to customers and building something of value for them. That's it. Like you've got to engage in that art of being able to hear what the customer's pain points are, their needs, their fears, their dreams, their aspirations, and you've got to have that ability to connect the dots and actually, you know, in some ways dial down the noise and get to the real hub of what it is that could possibly create the value for them. So for me there's sort of three important times of talking to that customer and and I actually have done an enormous amount of customer discovery and validation myself and I just find it the most valuable skill set that I own to be honest like to, to hone that skill of interviewing a customer and being able to listen know what to put to the side know where to go deep is a wonderful skill to have and I would encourage everyone to just flex the muscle lots because that's the only way you get better at it but the three sort of 
points where you you need to be really close to the customer is it's a no-brainer before you build anything. Please talk to your customers, talk to people before you build anything. The second point is as you're building it, right? Because as you're building it, you should be building it in bits and then going back and checking in, building it in bits, going back and checking in. And then finally, it's after you've built it because in innovation, there isn't an end point really. Like you might think, oh, great, we've launched our app. Well, you know, that is the beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey, right, because there's such huge opportunity to continue to involve that um, app. So it's an interesting one. I think there's a real fear of talking to customers, like in my observation of working with people, and Simon, you might find this as well, like people sort of clam up. You go, oh, my God, I'm going to get on the phone to a customer and ask them lots of intrusive questions. It's sort of scary. So that's the thing that you need to get people comfortable with. Yeah, look, what I find with this this actual part of listening, and this sort of works in your work as well, John, is that when you go out and actually have a conversation, which is maybe outside the formal interview or, you know, a, uh, a focus group conversation, let's say you take someone to the pub or, I don't know, you go for a walk, have a coffee, people come back going, oh, my God, I can't, I can't believe the stuff I found out. And the <laughs> flip side of it is your customer, they're going, holy shit. I feel valued. Someone listened to me. And so even though that's your internal customer, let's say it's a, a service you're designing, you know, human-centered service in, in the business, like how might we work together better in X, the people, like the joy on both sides of that is huge. And as you've said, it's most simple. Just be curious and listen. 100%. Yeah. And let me give you a sort of a really interesting lens on that as well right because I've worked in sales environments quite a bit right and sales teams and sales environments mostly what you're doing is you're going out and showing them your shiny powerpoint presentation and why they should buy what you're selling them right so it's all about you telling the story of what you're selling and why they should buy it I've seen sales people go out and instead of going to sell actually going out to do the customer discovery instead. So, you know, the, the customer's quite surprised because they think, oh, they're here, you know, John's here again to sell me something. <laughs> Sorry, John. That's what they Bloody often John. say, Gemma. Yeah. Here he but it's, <laughs> instead you, you sit down and you say, look, today's not about selling you anything. I actually just really interested in some feedback on, you know, how you found working with us in the experience that you've had and how our products are delivering for you and you take them through a little bit of an exercise. And I guarantee by the end of that, even though you've not sold a thing, you'll probably come out with, you know, an extra sale at the end of it or in the, in the yeah. you know, the week after through it because it, for exactly the, the reason you're saying, Simon, is they feel actually listened to. So that's a very powerful thing. So, Gemma, it's time for a thought experiment. Um, this idea is born out of the idea that philosophers over time have used thought experiments to expand their thinking, to consider ideas and explore them deeply. And so we have a thought experiment for you today. And we know that you have a sixth sense for what makes a great startup, how to innovate, how to disrupt and grow. So we're going to offer you some ideas now, some business ideas to see just how sharp those senses are. I'm going to read a description of a business and I want you to tell us if it's a genuine startup or it's a wind up. 
So this is Start Up or Wind Up. Love it. <laughs> Here we go. So uh, business idea number one, my ding-a-ling. It's uh, a brain cap that users wear, which monitors activity across their neural network. Individuals can wear these in creative thinking meetings. And when someone has a good idea, either their own or one that is sparked in response to another person's comment, the cap makes a ding-a-ling bell sound as electrical pulses highlight brain activity in the area associated with idea generation being fired up. So is that a start-up or a wind-up? I want to say that's a start-up. You're, gonna, you're just going to say start-up? Hold on a sec, one sec. So you want to say that or you are going to say it? I'm going to say, do you know why? Because um, I actually have worked most recently with this thing called neuroinsights. And maybe I'm just at the moment wired and orientated towards anything that measures your brain activity, but it's really fascinating. So neuroinsights in the Australian outdoor advertising industry at the moment is actually a really viable way to test for the impact of consumers to advertising in different advertising formats. And it's all about reading brain activity and people's emotional engagement um, with what they're seeing in different contexts. And it can actually look at the depth of memory encoding, so how successful advertising might be at long-term and short-term memory encoding. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just on a little bit of a... You're going to go start-up. I'm on a neuro thing at the moment, so I'm going to go start-up. The name's a bit iffy. I'll give you you that. Name's a bit iffy, but the technology uh, sounds sound. My ding-a-ling brain cap uh, is a wind-up. Did you get... <laughs> okay, let, let, let's do our next one. Okay. Next one. Now, this is called Died in House. Now, this was company was created because the founder found out that someone died in the house before they bought it. So the founder assumed the information would have been, you know, obviously part of the disclosure process, but discovered that in most uh, countries, your real estate agent is not required to tell you whether a murder, suicide, or violent death has taken place in your house. So you jump onto Died In House and it'll tell you whether someone has died in your house, whether you're living there or already about to purchase it. Is that a startup or a wind-up? Startup. <laughs> Yay! Startup, you are. Yay! Well done, well done. Very good. <laughs> okay, next, now, uh, a next fantastic one. Fantastic idea. I've got a little side story here. My, my wife and I, when we moved back from overseas, looking for a flat in uh, Manly, little seaside suburb in Sydney. Very hot, went into this apartment. It stunk. It absolutely stunk. The real estate agent is looking a little bit embarrassed, and he goes, I said, what in the hell is that smell? And he said, oh, someone died in here a few weeks ago. And it's a sad story, but they'd laid on the carpet for a couple of weeks. And he said, don't worry, we've replaced the carpet. All they'd done was pretty much cut out the body shape (laughs) and stuck in uh, some more carpet. And I'm like, you are joking, aren't you? And he's just thinking, oh, I can't believe my bosses have sent me here. (laughs) So anyway, we could have used diedinhouse.com. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Great idea. All right, right, come on, we keep going. Next. So next Next. one is uh, Food Shoot. Uh, And uh, Food Shoot uh, is installed 
into busy family houses with teenagers in mind. It's reminiscent of Dumb Waiters from yesteryear. I don't know if you know the Dumb Waiter, but uh, the food chute connects your kitchen directly to your child's bedroom. And specially designed canisters which can hold hot food are inserted into the food chute and bingo, they're straight up to the bedroom. So your adolescent doesn't need to stop gaming or leave their room for breakfast, lunch or dinner. Is that a start-up or a wind-up? I'm going to say just on principle, that's a wind-up. A wind-up. Because that's is just... It? <laughs> what is it? It is a wind-up. It is a wind-up. It is a wind-up. <laughs> oh, there's, there's people out there going, gee, that's a good idea, that. <laughs> Do you know what? That, to me, was a fatal flaw, right? Because if you think about the problem that's solving, it's solving the problem for the teenager who never wants to see their parents. It's not solving the problem for the customer who's buying it and installing this expensive thing, which is the parent who wants more time with their children. Oh. oh she is good, John. Huh? She is good. Six You're right. Cents. You're right. Six cents. Anyway. Yeah, I like that. Okay, next one, pocket trap. This is a neat wallet-shaped device which has a touch-sensitive mousetrap installed. So you can enjoy your night out, you know, the bar, gig, festival, relax in the knowledge that anyone who tries to pick your pocket will get a nasty, sharp rat trap snapping their fingers. Is this wind-up or start-up? Pocket trap. Ooh. I'm going to say start up even though I don't think it would go very well. Well sometimes your radar's good, sometimes your radar's oh, a bit bad. A this was up. a wind up. Okay. I was thinking maybe with electrical currents it could be quite good. You know? Like like a cow prod type technology inbuilt. Okay. So I've got this buzzer here but it's not quite it's not quite working at the minute. I've done... There we go. Oh there you go. So it's got a delay on it. Oh sorry Jim. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and John, yeah. should we make this the last one? Do you think? Yeah, should I do the one, my, my last one? Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, this yeah. last one uh, for you, uh, Gemma, is uh, the wind-up radio. Uh, this invention revolutionised access to radio media. It's simple radio receiver, which could be powered by the turning of a crank mechanism, thereby generating electricity to power it, as established through Faraday's law of induction. Is that a uh, wind-up or a start-up? What era are we talking about here? Sorry? Sorry? What era? Like, is era. this like uh, uh, this business of years idea. ago? These are, all, these, are all recent, <laughs> these are all recent things. Yeah, these are all recent things. Current day. Current okay. Day. I'm going to say a wind-up. Well, it's, uh, it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually. You've got one, haven't you? That's wrong. It's a, it, it is actually a start-up, but I'll give you half a point because it is a wind-up. It's a wind-up radio. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, there you go. Look, we can't all pick them, can we? Okay, Jen, we, we hear so much around this idea, I do personally, of intrapreneurialism and from in large corporates and acting like a startup in large organisations. Now, someone who's worked on huge projects in large organisations and across the multitude of startups, obviously on both sides of the fence with, uh, you know, angel investing and also, you know, scaling and growing your own business. We thought you would be a great person to 
ask some of these questions. Now, in a rapid fire way, we'll have this a little rapid fire round. John, fire away. Yeah, and I think we've we've heard some of this already, Gemma, but if you could distill it down into sort of a, a little top tips list, if you're a solopreneur, as you might call them, and you're keen to grow your own business, you've got this idea, and you're keen to grow it quickly, uh, what's the what's the three to five things? Is there a little step list that you should go, right, do this, 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 and this, and away you go? What would it be? So I'm just going to refer to my experience as solo entrepreneurialism. So I'm thinking like you're a consultant, right? So you do most of the work yourself. Yep. You're kicking off. You've got some skills. You want to go into consultancy, say, great, you're going to have lots of flex. They're harder to scale, of course, because you are it, right? So um, I think if you're going to build something like that fast, reputation referrals are really, really important. So I'd be really looking at getting, you know, a couple of friendlies um, to get some good projects across the line early and then really leverage those um, referrals, if you like, to, the, you know, get introduced and build your network that way. I would be picky about the jobs that you do. So you want things that are you can build on quickly over time. So be a little bit discerning. Do things that are going to be a little remarkable, if you like. And then the third one is a start as you wish to continue, right? So the the biggest thing that solo producers do all the time is work their guts out. That's not sustainable. You need to find a sorry, Simon, is this a little close to home? Um, oh no yeah possibly yeah yeah <laughs> you need to start as you wish to continue right so you need to you know have the balance in life don't work yourself into the ground because you won't enjoy it you know you won't enjoy it so just create some space for life as well okay next question thinking through a lens of teams how can teams let's say in larger organizations be more entrepreneurial what might they need to start doing? What might they need to stop doing? Yeah, so I think um, the biggest fo focus for teams in bigger organisations is really about mindset and culture building and behaviours, mm. right? So in big organisations that are not really on the innovation bandwagon yet, coming in with your big book of all the, uh, you know, the, the exercises and all the, you know, the science that you want to implement probably not going to fly but in your team you want your team to define the kind of culture that will lead towards innovation so are we sharing our problems and failures are we open to feedback do we draw out the opinions of others do we create space to do things outside of our BAU job are we thinking about our priorities for next week next month um, with a customer lens if you did those things simply within your team, it would make an immediate difference, even if you're in a less innovative organisation. Yeah, really, really good. And again, just so much in that, isn't it? Just open up that space for people to be able to sort of then come in, share openly, provide feedback, as you say. And the vulnerability and share piece. Your, share your failures about. comes up every yeah. guest we have, doesn't it? Like yeah, almost, it does, yeah. yeah. A hundred percent. Sorry, I was just going to say, so getting on to what, you know, what do you stop? You know, it's almost the flip of that, isn't it? So you've got to, you've got to stop judging. You've got to stop black hatting. You know, they're the things that are really important. You've got to stop just doing the same things again and again, even though you know it's not working because it's nice and comfy. So they're, they're the yeah. behaviours that you really want to change. 
And then maybe expanding out from that, Jebba, then leaders of organisations, which effectively are teams of teams, you know, you have all those. So teams are starting to do their thing. What do leaders need to do, do you think? Is it, is it then creating the right environment and culture that allows all of that to flourish or what would it be? 100%. So where I see um, innovation not flourish and people be frustrated within bigger organisations is where innovation and you know, that that um, cultural uh, openness to innovation doesn't exist at the top. And unfortunately, it's really hard to change. Like if you're just, you know, uh, a little down the levels in an organisation, you can't dictate, you know, what leaders do. But really good leaders um, will start by looking at themselves and their executive team and what's being modelled right at the top of the organisation because that's what's actually going to flow down through the organisation. So, you know, is it a... Um, is it a really hierarchical organisation where people are not encouraged to speak out when they have different ideas or don't agree necessarily with, you know, the way that a project's going? Or does the leader actually encourage that? Right up to the CEO, is the CEO open to being challenged um, with new thinking and ideas? And if you've got a CEO, a really good CEO who does, and I've worked in businesses like this where very open for, you know, challenging conversations to take place, that would be creating the best culture and climate for really great innovation. And I think that chimes again with other conversations we've had, Simon, through this this podcast. But um, yeah, I always thought that curiosity needs to be married with humility. So you've got to be curious if you're a leader and ask questions and be open to it. But then you've got to have the humility to accept or listen and make sense of what you're hearing and not go, no, I have the answers. A hundred percent. And just, you know, it's okay, isn't it, to say, you know, okay, well, we got that wrong, you know, like that's okay. And if you create a culture where it is is okay to to say that, um, then, you know, that's going to really have a significant impact on your people, their motivation and their engagement in your organisation and you're going to get great outcomes. Gemma, we're going to wrap things up now with a rapid fire round. So uh, here's some real straightforward questions. So what is one thing you couldn't do without in your life right at the moment? Sounds sappy, but has to be my dog, Boston. Love how dogs live in the present. Excellent walkers. Not very good at gardening. <laughs> now, we are building the occupational philosopher's manigesto. What one thing of all your learning do you think should be included? I think you guys would agree with me. It has to be staying curious, right? There has to be something in it about staying curious, you know? Just waking up every day and just going, you know, keeping your eyes open, looking around at the world, looking for juicy problems, gnarly problems to solve, and going out and thinking about how you solve those. Is there a book we should be reading? Yes. Related to this theme, because I've loved this conversation, we've talked a lot about startup, startup science. Um, many of your listeners will be aware of the whole lean startup thing. I'm not saying go and read lean startup. Lean startup is, is great for the science and the concepts. My favourite is a book called Running Lean by Ash Mariah. It's a follow-up to that. It is practical up the wazoo. It will teach you how to talk to customers. It'll teach you how to go deep and really listen and pull out of it 
um, actionable things that can send you on the path to a successful startup. So if you haven't read it, you you must read it if you're in startup. Now, last question is, uh, imagine it's the end of your, it's like, let's say you've retired and, you know, sort of the, the, towards the twilight years of your life, you've, uh, you've decided it's time to move into a retirement home. You're taken in, you're introduced to the other guests. How would you like to be introduced at your retirement home? Be, here's Gemma, she's... Here's Gemma, she likes to dance. <laughs> oh, lovely. That's it. Love <laughs> it. Um, Gemma, so just uh, we kind of touched on things where you're at at the to- at the start of the uh, start of the show. Uh, but w- what are you up to next? Is there something that's uh, directly on the horizon for you? Uh, it's kind of wonderful not to know. I think you know. Um, I think I'll be looking for something that has many of the ingredients that we talked about today. So I, w- I want to get involved in a business that's. Um, building something that's a bit game-changing. It's something new. It's a new market. It's a new opportunity. Um, It hasn't necessarily been established yet or it's been established but it's got a big growth trajectory over the next couple of years. So, you know, something that continues to sort of work the muscles that I have across those different functions we talked about today in a business that sort of embraces um, innovation and new things, new thinking and doing something um, of value. Um, for community, but also for customer. So we'll see. Watch his face. All right. Now let's say someone's listening to that. Uh, where can we conf- where can we find you? Connect with you online. Buy your virtual drinks. Where do we find your good stuff? You'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, so that's really yep. the place. Uh, send me an invite by all means. Please send me a meaningful note. I won't accept it if it just says, "Hey, we know we like a few things that." you know, are common, um, come up with something interesting and I'm sure I'll accept it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And don't sell me, don't, don't sell me anything as the first connection. Well, that's us. We're at an end, Gemma. So it only remains to say thank you very, very much for sharing everything. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, Thanks for playing as well. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute delight. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. John, John, John. How What a great chat as always. Gemma was perfect guest for our show and just re- I think brought in a really nice element from someone who spent a lot of time at the coalface on both sides of that coalface as well yeah. and ties in beautifully all the stuff we speak about uh, each and every week. Yeah. What were your key takeouts? Well, I, I liked obviously the just the opening bit about the, the land and world of startup. Not as easy as it looks. You know, the ideas are somewhat cheap and readily available to us, but it's all about the execution. And then the way she defined then how you'd bring that team together to launch, scale and sell, I thought was really interesting. And then I did like the way then she brought that back at the end and talked about teams and how they need to, when they work together, have a culture or create the environment where they're open to feedback, they share 
failures and are vulnerable with each other, which we've talked about before, as you know, that they create the space for those types of conversations that are about innovation and creativity. Again, that's a theme we've returned to. And I thought, interestingly, the last one on it was to, and as they're going about that work, don't forget to look through the lens of your customers. And again, that's true whatever the size of the organization. Ultimately, there is a customer or client at the end of that. So reminding yourselves to to look through the lens of the customer, I thought was really useful as well. Uh, so that was that. And then um, obviously the fact that um, someone as seasoned as Gemma was in recognizing great startups thinks uh, my ding-a-ling, the brain cap, was real. So <laughs> I'm going to go launch that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a little bit of customer testing and we'll see how we go i will report in end of the year so yeah <laughs> what about what about you simon uh i i like that one around that one at the end about uh leadership uh model the behaviors you want to see so it becomes around to creating that culture and the space for people to be innovative and allow that that sort of stuff to happen so model that and i love that you know be open to new information which you said as well and again listen to your customers okay and they can be internal and external because many of the challenges especially the people i work with they're trying to serve internal challenges so they can better serve their customers or solve internal challenges but that means you've got to listen to people internally as well so that customer centricity uh goes internally and externally as well and i like that one she said if you're going to start up a business like really think is it a lifestyle business or is it a growth business? Because a lifestyle business you may never even sell might be your thing that retires with you. Or is it a growth business? Because they're two very, very different lenses to look through. Okay. And then think, you know, if you are a lifestyle business, how do you become more profitable? So that's a different question again. So they're my couple of uh, takeouts. Great. Right. I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. All right, John. So. Number one thing, tell your friends. And rate us, and please. And subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And rate us five stars. Well, and also leave a review. Do tell us why yeah. you like the uh, podcast, assuming you do. If you don't, don't. <laughs> and uh, check out the website, uh, as ever, occupationalphilosophers.com. Get in touch if there's anything you'd like us to explore or people you think we should talk to. Do let us know. And so, Simon, in the meantime. Stay curious, make stuff, play more, have fun, and date life. <laughs>